47 years. That's how much time passed between Wyatt Earp leaving Arizona and his death. Nearly five decades spanning from 1882 to 1929, and yet we don't hear too much about it. Granted, the first 35 years of Earp's life were chock full of excitement. From the rough cow towns of Wichita and Dodge City to the boom towns of Deadwood and Tombstone. Toss in the famous gunfight at the OK Corral, the storied Vendetta ride, and friendships with other Old West legends, guys like Doc Holliday, Luke Short, and Bat Masterson, and you've got one hell of a fascinating story. But what about the rest of Wyatt Earp's time on Earth? I mean, 47 years is a lifetime. On the last episode, we had some fun discussing the movie Tombstone, the whole Huckleberry Huckleberry debate. But you do remember how that movie ends, right? Wyatt joins Josephine in Denver, and they start dancing in the snow while Robert Mitchum's voice nicely sums everything up. Wyatt and Josephine embarked on a series of adventures. Up or down, thin or flush, in 47 years, they never left each other's side. Wyatt Earp died in Los Angeles in 1929. Among the pallbearers at his funeral were early movie stars William S. Hart and Tom Mix. Tom Mix wept. Now, I know the movie is called Tombstone, so it's only natural to focus on that part of Wyatt's life. But what about Kevin Costner's Wyatt Earp? While they at least hint to Earp's adventures in Alaska, the rest of his life is also quickly summed up at the very end, in text form across the screen. Wyatt died in 1929, Josephine followed 15 years later, and their ashes are buried together in Colma, California. Roll credits. The casual fan of westerns could be led to believe that other than falling in love and a brief trip up to the last frontier, Wyatt Earp lived quietly for the remainder of his life, never doing anything else worthy of note. And oh boy, how wrong that assumption would be. Now that said, I likewise will not be doing a complete and thorough examination of Earp's final years. At least not on this episode. We'll save that for a series in the future. Today we're just going to focus on a little snippet. Something to whet your appetite and hopefully show that Wyatt Earp didn't simply fade away to the rocking chair in his old age. And after listening to this, that little brief mention of Tom Mix and William S. Hart at the end of Tombstone will make a whole lot more sense. That's right, we're going to Hollywood on this one. Things are going to get more than a little corrupt, and hopefully I don't get sued by the ghost of Wyatt Earp's widow. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. My Darling Clementine is considered, by many, to be the greatest Wyatt Earp film of all time. It also just happens to be the least accurate, despite legendary director John Ford having known Wyatt personally. Contrary to popular belief and Ford's own claims, this film was not based on Earp's own account of his days in Tombstone, but rather an earlier film whose director also knew the now-famous lawman. And I say now famous because Wyatt wasn't exactly what you would call a household name prior to the 20th century. His time in Dodge City, as well as his actions in Tombstone, certainly garnered Earp a reputation in certain circles. However, his introduction to the nation at large would not be as a lawman at all, but rather as the corrupt boxing referee who threw the fight for heavyweight champion of the world. Fitzsimmons vs. Sharkey was the sporting event of 1896, with Fitzsimmons as the favorite. He dominated Sharkey, dropping him in the eighth, and as the stunned pugilist rolled across the mat clutching his groin, Earp stopped the fight. He ruled that Fitzsimmons hit below the belt and then shocked the crowd by declaring Sharkey the winner. Fans were livid. Only Wyatt seemed to have witnessed the illegal punch, and Fitzsimmons ended up suing to contest the decision. The trial became national news, thrusting Earp into the limelight as the papers had a field day. 
Not only did they claim that Wyatt fixed the fight, but once his storied past was discovered, some in the press even went so far as to paint he and his brothers as stagecoach robbing criminals. Ultimately, the case was thrown out due to the fight being held in San Francisco, where boxing just so happened to be illegal. Skip ahead eight years and the match was proven to have been fixed, although historians do debate the level of Earp's involvement. More on that in a bit, but guilty or not, Wyatt's reputation was thoroughly sullied. In the years following the heavyweight bout, Earp and his wife Sadie traveled all over from Alaska down to the border with Mexico, opening up saloons, gambling houses, even brothels, a line of work that found Wyatt under arrest more than once, albeit mostly for minor offenses. Still, though, his infamy followed, as noted by the Seattle Daily Times, who described Earp as a quote-unquote bad man in a November 1899 edition. Eventually, sunny Los Angeles beckoned, but things weren't much different. Earp, despite now being in his early 60s, would get arrested twice more, first for firing off a rifle round at the feet of a federal receiver before threatening to blow the man apart, and again for just attempting to fleece somebody in a bogus pharaoh game, a charge that would later be reduced to simple vagrancy. And if all that wasn't bad enough, Wyatt then went ahead and got himself involved in some really shady shit, the movie industry. Earp began visiting film sets and even consulting on early westerns, all free of charge. A good deed likely not done so much out of the kindness of his heart as it was in the hopes that one day somebody would make a movie on his life that would repair his shattered reputation. Also got to think that the money such a project would rake in might have had a little something to do with his charity as well. As such, one day in 1916, Wyatt Earp and his friend Jack London, yeah, the author, crashed a set looking for actor and director Raoul Walsh. They found him and the three men had a nice little dinner along with another guest you may have heard of, Charlie Chaplin, as they discussed Walsh possibly making a biopic based on Earp's life, much like his recent film on Pancho Villa. Nothing ever came of this meeting, but the story goes that during dinner, Chaplin turned to Earp and asked if he was, quote, that bloke from Arizona who tamed the baddies. Wyatt would then befriend another notable actor by the name of William S. Hart, a man who prided himself on the authenticity of his westerns. And in March of 1922, Hart alerted Earp to an L.A. Times article painting him and his brothers as swaggering murderous bandits. Now, I'm not going to read this article here, but there were a ton of errors. Stuff like stating that Earp was ran out of Dodge City by Bat Masterson, that he rode with Frank Stilwell, yet even more suggestions that the Earps were involved with stage holdups, and finally, the story even claimed that Wyatt was dead. Blatant inaccuracies aside, the whole damn thing just made Wyatt and his brothers out to look like corrupt bullies. And, okay, maybe. But needless to say, this did nothing to improve his reputation. More determined than ever to get the green light on that biopic of his, Earp leaned on Hart, who ended up just meeting him halfway. Adding Wyatt as a small character, played by Burt Lindley, in the 1923 film Wild Bill Hickok. Although barely featured, the ad copy hyped Earp as one of the three best gunmen of all time, and small though the part was, Wyatt had finally became a character in the movies. Only a matter of time before his story gets made, right? Well, not so fast. Unfortunately, not only would critics pan Wild Bill Hickok, but the fans didn't care for it much either, causing it to be a flop at the box office. Even William S. Hart's career began to sharply decline. Still, though, for the next couple of years, both Wyatt and his wife Sadie continued to write hard about getting their film made, with Earp even claiming that he was having a script written. Link in the show notes if you'd like to read some of this correspondence. Finally, Hart just told the couple to go ahead and write a book, an idea that they thought was just swell. Only thing is, they would need a writer, and by this point, Jack London had already passed away. 
There was always Wyatt's friend, playwright Wilson Meisner, but he also just happened to be a lazy opium fiend. Finally, Wyatt settled on an unlikely candidate, a friend of a friend and mining engineer named John Henry Flood. For the next two years, Flood would write the stories as Earp told them, but Sadie stopped any type of conversation that she deemed unclean. Not only that, but she also demanded a chapter claiming that Wyatt saved two girls and a cripple from a fire, as well as suggesting to Flood that his prose needed some pep. And by pep, she meant gunshots to be written as CRACK! All capitals, exclamation mark. The chapter on the OK Corral alone had 109 CRACKS! They sent Flood's manuscript to various publishers, and We Do Not Care Particularly for the Style in Which It Is Written was probably one of the nicer responses. They wasted two years writing 348 pages of unreadable shit, a dilemma I can certainly sympathize with. And as fate would have it, they were not the only ones putting pen to paper in regard to Earp's life. Other authors had joined in the action as well, most notably Walter Noble Burns. Now, I've mentioned this guy a few times on the podcast, even on the last episode we did. Burns' 1926 The Saga of Billy the Kid made William Bonney a household name. And the following year, he would turn his attention to the Earp clan and publish Tombstone, an Iliad of the Southwest. While Sadie Earp was insisting that Flood write his 109th crack, Burns was busy interviewing Tombstone old-timers. Hell, he even met up with Wyatt himself, but Earp was a little cagey as, at the time, he was already working with Flood, and, well, we already know how that turned out. In other words, Wyatt Earp got scooped on his own life. By the way, what a great example of the Old West not just magically disappearing at the dawn of the 20th century. The gunfight at the OK Corral occurred in 1881, and when Burns was researching his Iliad of the Southwest, only 45 years had passed. Seems like a long time, but this would be the equivalent of somebody right now in 2023 researching the Jonestown Massacre. In the same way that there are still people alive right now who were members of Jim Jones' cult and survived that tragedy in Guyana, there were still people alive in the 1920s who lived in Tombstone during its heyday. Even some, like Wyatt Earp, who participated in the infamous events. Take Billy Breckenridge, for example. Cowboy gang partisan and deputy under Cochise County Sheriff Johnny Behan. Believe it or not, Earp did not bear a grudge as the two would meet up in Tucson in 1927 and reminisce about the so-called good old days. And just like Wyatt and Sadie and Walter Noble Burns, Mr. Breckenridge was also writing a book. The awesomely named Hell Dorado, Bringing Law to the Mesquite, was released in 1928 and despite the reminiscent in Tucson, it portrayed Earp as a pimp, thief, cheat, and murderer. Wyatt and Sadie were appalled, yet the book became a huge success. Another crack to Earp's reputation. By this point, Wyatt was in his late 70s, in poor health, and all attempts at redeeming his image thus far had failed. A few years before his death, he confided in a friend that the Fitzsimmons vs. Sharky fiasco was the bane of his life. And on January 13, 1929, at the age of 80, Wyatt Earp died of chronic cystitis in Los Angeles. And even in death, despite having a character named for him in that William S. Hart film, despite Hell Dorado and the Iliad of the Southwest, Wyatt Earp was still more famous for Fitzsimmons vs. Sharky than anything else. The city paper where Earp was born dedicated more to the match than any other event in his life, and sports articles of the time began using slang like pulling an Earp or erping it up when referee calls seemed fishy. Before passing away, however, Wyatt Earp gave a series of eight interviews to a wrestling promoter with an interest in the Old West. The promoter, a guy named Stuart Lake, then expanded those interviews into a book of his own with assistance from Sadie Earp. 
at least when she wasn't busy threatening legal action if the unsavory stuff wasn't omitted. The book, Wyatt Earp, Frontier Marshal, was published in 1931, and it was an instant smash, elevating the public's perception of Wyatt beyond anything he could have ever imagined. It was also a complete hagiography, meaning it made Earp out to be some sort of a saint. Be that as it may, it was effective in giving his name a bit of mainstream recognition, and Hollywood soon came calling with 1932's Law and Order, the first ever film about Wyatt Earp's life. Kind of. It was based off the novel St. Johnson, a fictionalized account of Wyatt and Doc in Tombstone written a year prior by W.R. Burnett. And I say Law and Order was kind of a Wyatt Earp movie because even though he was clearly the inspiration, his name was changed to Frame Johnson in both the novel and subsequent film. Despite these changes, however, it is considered one of the only Earp films that can stand alongside My Darling Clementine in terms of quality. Following the success of Law & Order, Fox purchased the rights to Lake's book, hoping to capitalize off being the first official Earp movie, at least in the sense that they'd be the first ones to use his name. This was not to be as Sadie Earp sued, saying it was an unauthorized portrayal and once again Earp's name got changed, this time to Michael Wyatt. This movie, Frontier Marshall, did middling business, likely in part to not being able to use Wyatt's name, and although today it is extremely hard to come by, it's considered by most who've seen it as just mediocre. As such, Fox would make a remake in 1939, with Earp as a fugitive from justice. A likely reference to Wyatt's 1871 indictment for horse theft, or just the shadier aspects of his character in general. Only this time they changed his name to David Earp. I guess the idea here was the studio knew there was no way Sadie would allow an official Wyatt Earp film to have references to his past criminality. They soon came to their senses, however. I mean, what's the point in making a Wyatt Earp movie without putting Wyatt Earp's name in it? And thus, the fugitive David Earp was rewritten again as the upstanding and totally not a criminal Wyatt Earp. That's not to say that Sadie didn't complain. She didn't think the script was close enough to Lake's book, and she really didn't like that Doc Holliday was a main character. Speaking of Doc, Fox was worried that his kinfolk might be as litigious as Sadie, so they changed his name to, get ready for this, Doc Holliday with an A instead of an O. I mean, come on, that could be based on anybody, right? And instead of being a dentist from the South, he's a surgeon from back East. This also was carried over into My Darling Clementine, only they were then allowed to use the O. And thus, you have 1939's Frontier Marshal, starring Randolph Scott and Cesar Romero. It's on YouTube if you'd like to give it a watch, link in the show notes. Of course, despite being the first authorized and official Wyatt Earp film, Hollywood being Hollywood, the movie takes quite a few historical liberties. There are no Earp brothers, Wyatt comes to Tombstone all alone, and there are no Clantons. Just Curly Bill Brocious and a few of his cronies. And the gunfight at the OK Corral? Well, it starts because Curly Bill kills Doc Halliday after challenging him to a duel. Later on, Wyatt Earp confronts Curly Bill and his buddies over at the Corral, and he guns them all down on his lonesome. That said, Frontier Marshall was a hit both with critics and audiences, cementing Wyatt Earp in the minds of the public. Wanting to repeat this success, Fox suggested a remake to John Ford in order to fulfill his contract. Ford then screened the film and said, shit, I can do better than that. And that's where My Darling Clementine comes in. And yeah, make no mistake about it, My Darling Clementine is a remake of Frontier Marshall with just minor differences like Doc removing a bullet from an injured child instead of a saloon girl, or Wyatt pinning on a badge after being beaten rather than finding his brother murdered. I got a lot more on this, but first, let's take a quick break for a word from this episode's sponsor. Welcome back. 
Okay, so in addition to John Ford's My Darling Clementine being one of the greatest wider films of all time, it also brings us right back to the very beginning of this episode in regard to Ford speaking about how he first met Wyatt Earp back when he was making them silent westerns. Interesting to note, Frontier Marshall's director, Alan Dwan, had a similar claim. And in addition to directing the quote-unquote first Wyatt Earp film, even if they didn't use his name, Dwan may have also directed the only film with Wyatt Earp himself actually in it. In 1915, Dwan was directing Douglas Fairbanks in a movie called The Half-Breed. As Dwan tells it, quote, Wyatt Earp was a visitor to the set. As was the custom in those days, he was invited to join in the party and mingle with our background action. I think there was a trial. A group of people demanded that the half-breed be sent out of town. And that group was Earp. He only stood there and nodded his head. End quote. Now that said, Dwan's view of Earp differed from Ford's. According to Dwan, Wyatt had been a real marshal in Tombstone, Arizona, and was as crooked as a $3 bill. He and his brothers were racketeers, all of them. They shook people down. They did everything they could to get dough. Now this harsh opinion, despite an error or two, is not completely out of line with the historical record. However, Dwan's physical description of Earp was all wrong. He said Wyatt was a one-eyed old man, but at no point did Earp ever lose an eye, at least not that anybody is aware of. As for whether or not Earp is in that courtroom scene, I'll let you be the judge. Included in the show notes is a link, so feel free to give it a view. For what it's worth, Earp historian Jeff Morey said that there is nobody in that particular segment who even remotely looks like Wyatt. Alan Barra, also an Earp historian, claims there's an extra who closely resembles Texas John Slaughter, a former Arizona sheriff and future topic here at the Wild West Extravaganza, who also happened to work in the movies. So more than likely, Dwan got something mixed up. Is it possible that Earp is an extra in a different scene or even a different film? Or was Dwan thinking of one of the dozens of other real-life Old West characters attempted to get into the movie business and ended up conflating him with Wyatt? If Earp did appear in The Half-Breed, clearly Dwan's idea of him as a corrupt racketeer didn't stem from Wyatt being an extra for a day. No, Dwan's dim view of Earp was probably from a time before his reputation had been publicly salvaged. Ironically, by a Wyatt Earp film directed by Dwan himself, Frontier Marshal. The movie that led to My Darling Clementine, which helped pave the way to 1957's Gunfight at the OK Corral, starring Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas which in turn spawned 1967's Hour of the Gun, which helped bring about, insert, one of the many numerous Wyatt Earp movies made over the years. Over 40, by last count, culminating in 1994 with the release of both Tombstone and Wyatt Earp. I say 1994, but technically Tombstone debuted on Christmas Eve of 93, so close enough. And yeah, I think it goes without saying, as far as Hollywood and most casual viewers are concerned, Wyatt Earp's reputation has been restored. Maybe restored isn't the right word. It's been rebranded. Unlike during Wyatt Earp's own lifetime, he is now widely regarded as an honest, brave, tough-as-nails lawman who, after a troubled youth and some minor indiscretions, cleaned up the wild boomtown of Tombstone. He purged the world of the nefarious cowboy gang and rode stoically off into the sunset with his true love who definitely was not a former prostitute. I think Wyatt would be pleased by this appraisal. I think Sadie would likely be pissed no matter what we said, and I think Doc Holliday would find it all absolutely fucking hilarious. And there you have it. Just like that, a legend is born. Now, we're not done yet, so don't go nowhere. We are going to discuss Wyatt some more, but before we do, I gotta credit the great David Lambert for inspiring and pretty much writing this entire episode. Everything you've just heard and most of what you're about to hear, minus a few additions and some rewording to 
sort of put the whole thing in my own voice, is based entirely off of one of David's amazing threads. Link in the show notes if you'd like to see it in its original pure genius form before I got to mucking it all up. I sort of mentioned David on the last episode, but if you're not yet familiar, he's an extremely talented artist and writer, as well as being the foremost expert on all things Western film related. And don't just take my word for it, check out one of David's many appearances on the Wrong Real podcast, Talking Westerns. Highly recommend the one they just did on the Three Godfathers, by the way. And if you'd like to check out some of David's art, or you would like to support a very talented artist, you can find him at David Lambert Art on most socials as well as Patreon. I will warn you, though, as far as the artwork goes, he does specialize in uh, the nude female form. And he does it well, so boner alert. And a little bit of a jealousy alert, too, at least on my part. This guy has somehow created a life centering around my two favorite things, the Old West and Naked Women. And don't worry, it's not all nudity. Uh, If nothing else, check out the picture he did of Warren Oates in Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. It's beyond amazing. Listen, I could talk about David for the next hour, and if it sounds like I've got a man crush on the guy, that's probably because I do. So please check out his stuff, link in the show notes for all of this. Once again, David Lambert Art. And thanks again, David, for providing some good podcast fodder. Hope I'm doing the topic justice. All right. With that said, back to Wyatt Earp and his reputation. Seeing as how all the bad press surrounding the man in his latter years stemmed entirely from a fixed boxing match, you may be wondering just what the hell business Wyatt had working as a referee to begin with. Well, first of all, to Earp's credit, the man could fight. Unlike Doc Holliday, who Bat Masterson once described as not being able to whip a healthy 15-year-old boy in a go-as-you-please fight, and thus was quick to resort to gunplay, Wyatt, by all accounts, could handle his own. His daddy, Nicholas Earp, was a tough old bird himself and taught his sons what he knew about the fine art of fisticuffs. As such, I'm not sure that Wyatt ever shied away from going toe-to-toe with most comers, and then he wouldn't usually just receive a tap on the head via the barrel of his six-shooter. As far as Wyatt officiating a fight, the first one I could find was way back in 1869 when a 21-year-old Earp allegedly refereed a bout in Cheyenne, Wyoming, between Professor Mike Donovan and John Shannessy. Yes, the same John Shannessy who, as a saloon owner about eight years later, would introduce Wyatt to a gambler by the name of John Henry Holiday. But I'm getting sidetracked now. Point is, leading up to the Fitzsimmons-Sharkey match, Earp had already refereed some 30 or more bouts. Be that as it may, he was still a last-minute choice. The two fighters couldn't agree on a ref, and Fitzsimmons' camp initially objected to Earp as he was friendly with Sharkey and his people. Wyatt even offered to step down, but the Fitzsimmons' side finally relented. Then, as Wyatt entered the ring, police captain George Whitman stopped him right there in front of thousands of spectators, and made him remove the pistol he had bulging from his coat. Since boxing was illegal, Whitman should have shut the entire event down, but I reckon he had to draw the line somewhere. And thus began the first of Earp's many indignities stemming from this match. At the trial that followed, doctors testified that Sharkey did in fact show signs of being struck in the groin, an observation that failed to exonerate Wyatt in the eyes of the public. Like I said earlier, boxing was illegal in San Francisco, so the judge couldn't just rule in favor of Fitzsimmons for getting cheated out of the illicitly earned money. The case was thrown out and nobody got charged except for, you guessed it, Wyatt Earp. He had to pay a $50 fine for toting that six-shooter. And if that's not bad enough, with his name plastered all over the news like it was, Wyatt's unpaid debts began to surface. The next day, a suit for $1,110.79 came from Tombstone for a 19-year-old arrear. 
followed by an additional $2,121 debt that he owed to a loan company. It was also brought up in court that Earp's wife Sadie was a quote-unquote degenerate horse player and that she had a habit of taking out loans against her jewelry. Oh boy. And as I mentioned before, the press went wild. They ignored any positive aspects of Wyatt's life, amplified the negative, and just flat out made shit up. Reporters tracked down men Earp had arrested way back in the day and printed their word as gospel. Even the gun he was fined for carrying during the fight was described as, quote, murderous looking. Papers from coast to coast reprinted an article about Wyatt's time in Tombstone, claiming that he ran a stage robbing operation with his three brothers, Virgil, Warren, and Julian. Julian? The write-up also asserted that the Earp bandits divvied up the loot with their cousin, Curly Bill. Now, obviously, I don't have to tell you that there was not a brother named Julian, nor was Curly Bill a cousin of the Earps. Oh, and also the article threw in that Wyatt and his brothers killed a whole bunch of innocent people. So, you know, that's always fun. One paper, in an attempt to, I guess, be neutral, wrote of Wyatt, quote, His past mode of making a livelihood by use of a gun has been told. He has shot down people innumerable, wiped the smoke off the barrel of his shotgun, and cut another notch in the butt and said, What a great man am I. End quote. So yeah, they went a little bit beyond simple accusations of Wyatt being corrupt. Evidently, it was not a good idea to fuck with 19th century boxing fans. Oh, and the doctors who said Sharky showed signs of being hit in the groin, they testified that they were barred from seeing him until a day after the fight. The only physician, and I do use that term loosely, permitted to immediately examine Sharky was one B. Brooks Lee. And the thing about B. Brooks Lee is that he did not have a license to practice medicine. He did, however, have an arrest record. And Sharky's trainer admitted to seeing a bottle of potassium iodide, which causes swelling, in the dressing room after the fight. There were other signs pointing to a fixed fight, but once again, they weren't supposed to be boxing in San Francisco in the first place. Sharky won his case, but the court kept 15% of the $10,000 prize due to an injunction. And when it was all said and done, very few people accepted him as the real heavyweight title holder. Jump forward a few years and B. Brooks Lee would finally be arrested in Portland for fixing this fight. People were just not letting it go. Lee admitted he was paid a cool one grand to make it look like Sharky was hitting the groin, but he didn't reveal how. He would later be charged with murder after stabbing a man in the eye. As for Wyatt, as much as he may have regretted officiating that match, he would then turn around and get involved in yet another thrown fight. Just three and a half months after Sharky Fitzsimmons, he was seen at a bout in Carson City in the company of both Sharky and his manager. Per the Los Angeles Times, quote, Earp looked as modest and unassuming as ever, with the same old suspicious bulge in his coattails and the smile of self-satisfaction on his countenance. End quote. A month later, the press would announce that Wyatt had taken on the role as Sharky's new advisor, helping him prepare to face off against Peter, the Irish giant mayor. This fight would take place in New York City on June 9, 1897, to an audience of 12,000, including then-New York Police Commissioner and future POTUS, Theodore Roosevelt. And it turned into an absolute shit show. Once Sharky and Mayor really started going at it, even continuing to slug it out after the bell, police officers rushed the ring and arrested everybody within the ropes, ultimately resulting in a draw being called. Just like in San Francisco, boxing was illegal in New York. However, there was a loophole known as the Horton Law that made exhibition bouts perfectly within the bounds of the law. So long as both boxers sparred for points and didn't get too carried away, it was game on. Obviously, this left a lot up to interpretation and the police could choose when and when not to arbitrarily enforce it. 
I guess the theory was that if Sharky appeared to be losing, the police would jump in and put an end to the fight. And apparently, that's just what they did. And if you're one proof, look no further than Wyatt Earp. While he had been working with Sharky's team and he had been in New York in preparations for the fight, he left for California a few days before it actually went down. And once he arrived in the Golden State, he told the LA Times that the fight, quote, had been arranged for Sharky to win on the same principle as Sharky's fight with Fitzsimmons, end quote. So just how culpable was Wyatt Earp when it came to fixing these fights? For sure, Sharky and his team were in on it. I think that much is a given. Did Earp leave New York in disgust after discovering that yet another match was to be thrown? Or did he simply remove himself prematurely as to avoid any more bad press? Did Wyatt even purposely throw the original Sharky and Fitzsimmons fight? Or was he really convinced that Sharky did indeed receive that foul? I have no idea. Uh, I just hope some of this is included in the next Wyatt Earp movie, which, if I had my druthers, would be in the form of a HBO miniseries. Alright, and just for fun, just to bring it all full circle, yes, the legendary John Ford really did know Wyatt Earp, and the two did spend quite a bit of time together on set during Ford's silent film era. That is all true. But as to Ford's claims that My Darling Clementine was an accurate portrayal of the fight at the OK Corral, as described by Earp himself, I will refer you to all of Carrie actress and wife of iconic actor Harry Carey. As far as Ford's assertions, Olive said, quote, He's full of crap. He made that all up. You know damn well he made it all up. End of quote. Of course, in all fairness, John Ford made up a lot of crap that ended up being pretty damn good. So how about a few odds and ends to wrap everything up? Uh, as far as Jack London and Wyatt Earp really crashing that movie set, we don't know for sure that that happened. This story is considered to be apocryphal. It was never mentioned by London's wife, nor found in any of her many extensive notes or diaries. It could have happened, it may have happened, but as of this recording, Raoul Walsh is the only source. You can find his version in his memoirs, Each Man in His Time. Link in the show notes if you want to read it and decide for yourself. Also, as tends to be the case, True West Magazine has a couple of excellent articles shedding further light on the topics discussed in this episode. The first, written by Alan Barra and titled Wyatt on the Set, details a lot of what we discussed today with Earp in Hollywood with plenty more tantalizing tidbits thrown in. Highly recommend you giving that a read. Also, if you're a boxing fan and you need to further scratch that Wyatt Earp itch ears, check out Garner A. Polinsky's article The Fix, covering Wyatt's involvement with both the aforementioned boxing matches. Link in the show notes for all this, uh, and I hope you found this topic as interesting as I did. I'm forever fascinated with the people from the Old West era, legitimate gunslingers, people who hunted buffalo on the prairie and walked the streets of Dodge City and Deadwood, living long enough to be involved with the movie industry. I mean, there are people alive right now who were directed by John Ford, and John Ford knew Wyatt Earp. We're literally one generation removed from the guy who gunned down Curly Bill Brocious. I've said it before and I'll say it again, this is not ancient history, and the Old West era was not that long ago. All right, that's enough rambling. Uh, I think this about does it for the first episode of 2023. Hope you had fun ringing in the new year. Hopefully you had plenty of black-eyed peas, cabbage, and cornbread, and I hope you're ready for another full year of the Wild West extravaganza. Just a quick reminder, the Jim Bridger series is still in the works. Look for that soon, and I may toss in another one-off episode before that drops. Oh, and last episode, I asked for you to share your favorite quotes from the movie Tombstone, and I did receive quite a few. 
Omar Reyes wrote in and said he's partial to skin that smoke wagon. As well as, listen here, Mr. Law Dog. Law don't go around here. Savvy. Jonah on YouTube loves the scene where Curly Bill, as portrayed by the late Great Powers Booth, gives Wyatt that little smirk and says, well, bye. Lee Rogers likes to use the strain was more than he could bear. And Vicky, whenever she's getting ready to visit family in Oklahoma, warns them with a, you tell them I'm coming and hell's coming with me. Also, quite a few people were disappointed I didn't mention Huckleberry Hound, to which I have to ask, how old do you think I am? I grew up watching Ren and Stimpy and The Simpsons. Thank you very much. I mean, I also remember Fraggle Rock, so I guess I am kind of old, but I do not recall ever seeing one episode of Huckleberry Hound. Then again, I have not yet begun to defile myself. All right, thank you for listening. Thanks again to David Lambert. Please check him out at David Lambert Art, as well as the Wrong Real Podcast. As always, give my website a visit, wildwestextra.com, for more true tales from the Wild and Woolly West. And while you're there, please hit that contact button and shoot me an email. Also, I know I've been a bit derelict as far as the newsletter is concerned, uh, what with the holidays and all. But more of that is coming your way very shortly. And it's easier than ever to sign up. Just simply go to my website and hit the tab that says newsletter. It is 100% free. All right, till next time, try not to throw the heavyweight championship. And don't go crashing any movie sets demanded to speak with the director. Unless it's Young Guns 3 and you're trying to convince John Fusco to cast me as an extra. Just kidding. Don't do that. Seriously, though, John, call me. Adios. and naked women.